Hello and welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast, episode number 54. My name is Phil. Joining me as usual, I've got my co-host, Rohan. How's it going? Good. And joining us, we also today have Brandon. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, guys. This episode is sponsored by Home Assistant Cloud by Nabacasa. Easily and securely access your local Home Assistant instance remotely for a small monthly fee that also supports the Home Assistant project. The configuration is done by the user interface, so there's no fiddling with router settings, SSL certificates, or any YAML. All right. So another big release, 0.97 this week. Uh, and before we get on uh, with Brandon's awesome stuff that he's doing with Home Assistant, I thought I'd um, just quickly touch on something that we spoke about uh, last episode with John. I've gotten away from hard coding any kind of values within Home Assistant and started using uh, basically variable values in the UI. So I'll make a slider, yes. for instance, mm-hmm. or I'll make a, 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 the ability to select numbers or time slots within the UI instead of having to hard code anything. So, so in this case, Home Assistant is your alarm clock, or, or kind of, kind of everything is gets driven by there. Yep, yep. Everything gets okay. initiated from there and then driven elsewhere. Okay. Yep. Mm, so you've got this got a bit of trust there in, in Home Assistant that it's actually going to control that whole process of waking you up. Yeah, yeah. So on Reddit, user Monty thirty three uh, reached out to me in a private message and said that. I found a way to integrate my phone's alarm app with Home Assistant so that Home Assistant knows when I'm planning to get up but leaves uh, the waking up part to my phone. So I use an app called Alarm Droid as my alarm clock and this could be adapted to many other apps as well but uh, in the Alarm Droid there is a setting to display a notification for upcoming alarms and I think the default is like 30 minutes or something but he's increased it to one hour. Uh, The next step, he uses Tasker, so I have a profile set up in Tasker to look for a notification that has the text uh, next alarm, and once Tasker sees it, it then sends a HTTP post request uh, or webhook through Nabucasa, which then tells Home Assistant that he will be waking up in the next hour, and then from there, Home Assistant can trigger off some automations based on that. So that's a really cool way to make another variable alarm. It also gives a little backup that you know, if you don't want to trust Home Assistant to be responsible for waking you up, you can have you can just set your phone alarm as you normally would, and then integrate that with Tasker and get that pushed over to Home Assistant. So, I thought that was worth mentioning. I'll leave links to the apps that Monty's mentioned uh, in the show notes on Has Podcast, but I don't think iOS that would work because iOS is very jail yeah. like lockdown. But really cool uh, implementation for Android users. That's very cool. Well, hopefully we see more apps that have uh, like alarm apps with APIs in it, right? So that you can actually start leveraging things like this. That'd be kind of cool, actually. So if if anybody is thinking of making an alarm app, here's your your foray into it. Yeah, that's right. So let's talk about 0.97 a little bit. So first and foremost, um, I just wanted to throw out there, Python 3.5 is no longer supported. So if you're on a manual install of Home Assistant, um, where you have Python installed manually, you need to upgrade to 3.6 or later. With that said, if you're using the Docker image or, or anything similar, you don't really need to worry about it. 
yeah, Hass.io and all the Docker images will already be running the latest version of Python anyway, but just in case anyone running their own instance, that's good to know. Yeah, that's right. Uh, some new features in this release. Some of the, One of the big ones that you'll see in this release, well, you won't really see, is uh, improved accessibility. So a lot of HTML tags and buttons are going to have more attributes added to them, making sure that they're more compatible for screen readers. Uh, that'll be used for people like that are vision impaired and use, you know, like the computer uh, speaking what's on the screen for those people. So good to see that Home Assistant is thinking forward and it's better to start uh, improving the accessibility of an app before it, you know, really grows and, and gets much larger than what it already is. Um, so, yeah, that's good to see happening as well. Yeah. Also, uh, the server control has been moved to its own config area. So, uh, Marin Pool, after a Reddit suggestion, moved to server control settings. So, like things like validating a config, reloading has, and all of that kind of stuff has moved into a new section of the config screen. So, look out for that. I must say, when I installed the beta, I was actually about to uh, go in and and file a bug request saying, "Hey, like, how do I like reset my config now? Like, I've got my advanced options set in the in the, in the profile, but you've just removed it all." But Fair enough, it's just moved into this whole new section, which is a lot easier. Mm-hmm. A new integration, Apache Kafka. So Home Assistant can send all those events to Kafka. And Kafka is used for building real-time data pipelines and streaming apps. So I'm sure there is a lot of use cases for this. So it's going to be interesting to see some of the cool stuff people are going to do with this. Yeah, and uh, another contribution by Frank, 20 Milu. Uh, I probably really butchered that name, so I apologize. <laughs> But uh, now Home Assistant can see waste pickups uh, in the Netherlands. So there you go. That's cool. Uh, And FortiGate firewall presence detection has now been added. So if you're using a FortiGate firewall, you can now have devices that connect to it exposed to Home Assistant. And Bluetooth light bulbs. So Avia, although they don't support this anymore, if you have those today, Home Assistant can now control those light bulbs. So, um, so I guess the, the provider themselves or the manufacturer themselves of VIA has stopped from, uh, stopped supporting the actual product. So if you're concerned about that, then here's a great way to get around that. Yeah. I like when, um, homies can come in and sort of take over where a company has just abandoned a product, right? Which yeah. in this case, lucky it was using Bluetooth. If it was a cloud based, you know, connection that needed a cloud server, then you might've been out of luck. But yeah, I think it was, it's good to see, you know, Bluetooth being able to be used in this case. Yeah, I think those ones are a little harder to, to like, ones that use cloud, unless you're actually building mm. your own cloud around it and have their proprietary info or whatever. So, but, yeah. but for stuff like this, I think it's great. And an interesting one, uh, this release, is the Rainforest Eagle 200. So the Eagle 200 is, is a device that I'm guessing you would stick, maybe already existing in your home, uh, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, so it connects using Zigbee, Ethernet, and Wi-Fi to various behind-the-meter devices. So it includes smart meters, hot water tanks, smart outlets, solar inverters, and energy storage systems, so batteries or anything like that. So with Home Assistant, you'll be able to monitor the uh, energy use of your home if you have a Rainforest Eagle 200 at your home. So that's really cool to see. It's kind of a cool name too, Rainforest yeah. Eagle 200. Yeah. Right. Also, the French water provider, uh, Suez, now has integration with Home Assistant. So you can actually see how much water your house has been using over the past few months as well as the previous day. That's actually a kind of cool one because now you don't need you don't necessarily need a uh, you don't need to tap your actual 
water pipes yeah. or anything like that. So you can actually pull the pull it right from from the provider. So that's that's mm. kind of neat. And you could even potentially, I'm guessing, depending on how accurate the data is, which I'm guessing if it's the water meter that they're using to bill you would have to be pretty accurate. If you've got a leak in your home, I'm guessing you could do some, you know, maybe some automation or, or you know, trend over time and see if your house is all of a sudden using more water than what it usually would. Maybe you've got a leak somewhere and you can use Home Assistant to alert you for that. Hmm. Okay. So that's, that's interesting actually. Yeah. Cause, cause I was thinking you meant like when you started, when you started saying that, I thought you meant like leaks in the sense that, Hey, there's uh there's a leak here, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. in in that sense, I think that would make more sense. That'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. You may not have a water leak sensor, um, you know, everywhere, or, you know, yeah. you might have uh, a faulty hose out in the garden. that's just watering a, your garden, but you wouldn't necessarily know you've got a leak somewhere. Yeah, yeah, Whereas, yeah. you know, now with using this data, you could potentially, yeah, you wouldn't be able to know whereabouts it is, but you'll be able to say, hey, something's wrong. Like, let's look into it a bit more. Yeah, or, or just, hey, your your usage is higher than normal for this time of the month or this month compared to other months. Or Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you could also gamify your life a little bit, you know, if you use a, a bit more water the day before, maybe you can't watch as much TV the next day or something like that and home system can lock it down or something like that. Yeah, yeah, or one more piece of candy for <laughs> taking a <laughs> quicker shower. <laughs> exactly. Like I'm sure there's a Black Mirror episode in there. <laughs> All right, some breaking changes in this release and a big one comes for the Google Maps location tracking. So if you use the Google Maps uh, location service, you would know that you have to set up a separate account that you would log in and share your location with in terms of the Google world. Uh, previously, you were able to specify a username and password in your home assistant configuration file. Moving forward from this release, you will no longer be able to specify a password. Uh, the reason for that is that the the library that's being used by Home Assistant to communicate with Google is no longer accepting passwords. Instead, it will require a, uh, a text file which will exist in your Home Assistant configuration directory that stores, you know, the cookie data. And cookie data is essentially whenever you talk to a website, the website can store some data on your browser to say this is the session and this is the user that's logged in under that session. So if you're setting up the Google Maps location tracking for the first time, there are some instructions that will be available in the component page on homeassistant.io and you can follow that instructions to generate a file that you'll need to place in your Home Assistant configuration directory. If you were previously using the Google Maps location tracking before 0.97, Home Assistant should already have generated that file for you. So when you come to upgrade to 0.97, the only thing you should really need to do is just remove password from your configuration file, and then it can still use the existing cookie file that exists in your config directory. Interesting. And I'm okay. guessing that you will have to re uh, probably re-log in every few months when that cookie token expires. I'm guessing. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's, you know what, from a security perspective, I think it's a little better. Um, also, speaking of, uh, so Z-Wave network keys. So if you have Z-Wave network keys in configuration.yaml and in the UI, uh, the configuration.yaml uh, network password will actually override what's in the UI. So if you've done this in uh, in in both places, you might want to be careful of that because whatever you have in that file will actually uh, will actually be what's considered. So if you have two different passwords, this might break some stuff for you. You know, if you have trouble connecting to some things after the upgrade, just try commenting it out in the 
config.yaml if if that's what's wrong. Yeah, I'm guessing when people upgrade, it's going to potentially use a, an old secu- network security key and people are going to be like, oh, all my devices disappeared for whatever reason. But hopefully yeah, exactly. Quick solve. Uh, one that affects the Ring camera component, the scan interval has been removed. So a lot of Ring products are coming out. They've got, you know, a whole bunch of new smart home gadgets like lights and motion sensors and all that. So to support those devices in the future, uh, the scan interval has been removed from the Ring camera component. And moving forward, if you want to change, you know, how often Home Assistant dials uh, Ring for an update, you can do it by specifying it in the Ring component uh, sort of portion of your YAML config. So next to where you would put your Ring username and password, you will now instead put the scan interval in that position there. So if, now this shouldn't affect many people, it is only if you've manually chosen to decide the scan interval for the Ring camera component. If you have done that, you will just need to update your config for this release. Also the calendar platform. So the calendar platform has a few updates. Um, so this will actually uh, affect you if you have anything like Todoist in there, Google Calendar, or whatever other kind of calendaring kind of integrations. Uh, that leverages that platform. So what happens is before 097, when an event gets completed or when it's done, Home Assistant would change it to a default value to basically say that there's nothing new coming up. After 097, what ends up happening is, uh, so once that event has, once the time frame has passed and there's nothing else in the future, what's going to happen is the state of the sensor will actually stay as is. So the reason they had to do this um, is actually so that uh, it's more compatible with other Home Assistant sensors. So instead of putting it back to a default null value or to a default uh, no event upcoming kind of value, it'll it'll stay the same as what it was. So automations that if you have any automations based on this kind of things, you'll need to upgrade those, uh, update them. And the Nuki Lock services, they've been changed. So if you're using a Nuki Lock, you'll have to use the new lock.open service. And there's also a Nuki Lock and Go service. So... Yeah, if you're using any of those services in your automations, you will have to update for those this release. So multi-room support has now been added for Snapcast. So if you, just to be consistent with uh, platforms like Sonos, Snapcast Join and Snapcast Unjoin have been kind of added too. Um, so because of, the cha- because of these changes, certain services have been renamed, things like Snapshot and Restore. So you'll have to deal with that and uh, you may have to... If you have any automations that rely on that, you may have to use that. Cool to see that um, small, like multi-room support has been added. Yeah, I that's mean that's a cool. it, it's a step forward, right? So, mm. um, and some other interesting updates for this release. The first one is if you're a Spotify user, there's a new Spotify service to start playing a playlist. I know this one has been requested a lot, and it's something I use in my home uh, with Sonos at least. Uh, you know, just being able to start a Spotify playlist is really cool. So uh, there's now the new service, uh, Spotify.play underscore playlist. And there's uh, also the ability to choose a random song as well. So that's cool. Interesting. Yeah, because I guess I didn't realize that because I don't have any Sonuses. I guess it's not natively built in because unless you have uh, ones with uh, like the Amazon Echo integration in there. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Okay. So, okay. So that's kind of cool. Also, um, areas are now supported for fans, covers, automations, counters, alarm control panels, scenes, inputs, wink, and a whole bunch more stuff. <laughs> um, 
So Aaron Bach went ahead uh, and decided, hey, you know what? We're just uh, we're going to expand quite a bit of stuff in that <laughs> in that front. So thanks a lot, Aaron. That's uh, that's great. Yeah, you know, I was I was looking at all these in the releases. Like, wow, like I actually kind of forgot that areas had been added to the Home Assistant, and I think now with this new update, I think it's going to really bring areas as a, a more you know feature that can be used now yeah yeah actually i i have an i have an update of my own to add to this oh um, please please well just not really to home assistant but more just my personal setup <laughs> uh because i'm selfish and i want to talk about myself right now uh Do it. so so i decided uh, a couple of weeks ago on twitter i posted saying just you know, what are people using for Zigbee and so on and so forth. So uh, I'm happy to say I received a Conb2 uh, uh, day before yes. yesterday. Nice. And I uh, plugged it into my Raspberry Pi, uh, slapped uh, Hazio on that. And uh, it's actually my first time using Hazio, believe it or not, because uh, I run wow. it on Docker normally. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. And uh, big step. But uh, so so I'm planning on having a dual home assistant setup, one for my Zigbee stuff with uh, ZHA. Yep. And yep. uh and one the stuff that I'm running already on my Docker containers. And uh, yeah, so far it's worked really well. I've got a couple of, uh, I've just got one motion sensor and one uh, uh, water leak detector added so far, but I'm going to eventually mm-hmm. start moving all everything off of smart things and onto this. So I'm pretty excited That's for that. That's cool. Yeah. So. so how have you, so what brand of the motion sensor and water leak have you got? So it's it's actually the Smart Things brand. So um, what ah, happened yeah. is because I have the Smart Things today, and uh, I've used the integration with Smart Things and Home Assistant to to uh, basically bring the state of all those uh, devices in. And for for whatever reason, I on uh, on Prime Day actually Best Buy had a great sale uh, on all of this uh, Smart Things gear. So I picked up four motion sensors, and I don't know, I think four or six motion sensors and a four water leak sensors and yep. that kind of thing. And I was, and then, and I got thinking kind of going, okay, well, if I add this to smart things, it's, it's almost a step backwards for me because I, in the back of my head, I kind of, I've been wanting to get rid of smart things, uh, to get rid of that hub for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason is because, uh, the smart things integration is great, but it's, it's, a little bit like once in a while it does break or once in a while I, I, you know, you run into some issues. So I'm hoping by moving to this, it's going to be a little more stable to that, uh, than that smart things to actually connect to the devices and stuff has been very stable. It's been very good that way. Yep. Um, I just don't like their programming interface or, or anything like that. So I prefer home assistant for that. So, yeah. So I mean, again, it's purely a personal preference thing. Um, there's, zero reason why i needed to do this but i think uh i'm I'm hoping to improve the stability of my uh of my of that interface so right now for example my light switches uh that are in my house the non-lutron ones that i have from before uh those run z-wave and those guys uh if i if i tell home assistant to turn it on or off it doesn't actually do anything because that integration once in a while breaks so even on my echo i've actually have those devices excluded and going directly through smart things um, so it's, it's not the most ideal setup. So, uh, mm. so yeah, so con B2 and, uh, ZHA. So thank you everyone for your input. I just wanted to say, uh, give a shout out to everybody that, uh, that gave me their suggestions there. Now, I'm very interested because I've just undertaken a little project of myself. So I, I was having also like Zigbee issues I talked about in the last episode. Yeah. And so I ended up moving, uh, into three Zigbee networks essentially. So I've got, uh, oh, wow. two, 
uh, instances of ZigBee to MQTT running in the house, one at each end of the house. And for the middle of the house, because um, I have those Lightify light bulbs that don't seem to mesh very well, and they're stuck in the middle of the house, they don't yeah. talk to either one, There, there's another network running there just for those lights. So, the so yeah, essentially I've split my house in sort of a, th- a third, you know, with a, a middleman in the middle. It's, they're none of them are communicating with each other, but at least, yeah, much more stable now. But that's why I'm hoping that the combi in the future will hopefully replace everything. And so I'll be interested to see how you get on with yours. Yeah, and and one one thing I learned through all of this is actually, um, luckily, I got ahead of it and actually did a little more research than I probably normally would before doing something <laughs> like this. And uh, one thing I realized is because I was originally I was going to go with uh, Decons, which is kind of the, the software that comes with with the combi, yes, right? Yep. Uh, by by the manufacturer, I believe their name is Dresden Electronic. Um, Correct. So I was I was going to go with that, but. They actually only support one of the smart things components. I think they support the motion sensor natively, not the water mm-hmm. leak sensor. So just, and, and I noticed uh, on the forums, a lot of people did have issues with that in the past. So, and you know, everybody's like, well, I use ZHA and it works great. So I use ZHA and so far it works great. So uh, the, the response time is decent too. Yeah. But there's been so many updates to ZHA recently too. Like they've done a lot of work making it really yeah. easy to configure in um, home assistant natively in that. So yeah, it'd be really cool to see how you get on with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Paula suggested ZHA as well. And, and, you know, I think, I think it's so far it's been, I mean, with, with the two devices I've got in there, it, <laughs> it works great. Um, yeah. But uh yeah, I'll make sure to update on that once in a while. Let's see how it goes. Uh, if we're doing personal updates, I'm going to do a quick um, <laughs> service announcement, announcement if I can. Um, so as you guys are aware, uh, I'm today I'm running from a 3G connection because my I have no internet at home. Yeah. So I had the perfect storm uh, last weekend. Friday, just before lunch, I got an alert to say that my home assistant was offline thanks to my duck DNS and uh, uptime robot sent me an alert to say it was down. I've been without internet for over a week now. Uh, so that day I actually left, like perfect storm, I left straight from the office and had to go to the airport because I was going into state for the weekend. So my wife got home after dropping me at the airport and couldn't fix the internet. So um, because everything in the house is Zigbee, all the lights were on. She had to use light switches because the local network, for whatever reason, wasn't working. I'm guessing we had a power failure or something. It was the perfect storm. I wasn't there to oh, fix it. Man. So Sunday night I got home, spoke to the ISP, and they said, yep, look, we're going to have to get a technician out. Upshot of it is I still don't have uh, any internet, but there are some learnings that I'm going to – I'm sort of going to do a post-mortem and, and do a blog post about it because I've, I've learned a lot, you know, things that I can change, home assistant-wise that I can change, you know, to mm-hmm. make things work. But one thing I do want to just give a quick shout-out is uh, to Plex users, and this is something that's really frustrated me uh, with Plex, is that Plex actually – requires an active internet connection before you can start playing any of your local media and it's something that i wasn't expecting and it wasn't you know something that's like why would you need that so i have uh an lg WebOS tv you can't actually open any apps including plex without an internet connection on that tv oh that's so frustrating that that is frustrating so i was like that's fine i've got the roku still connected to the tv the roku wouldn't connect to wouldn't let me connect to plex it would see that i had media on there but as soon as i started playing something it would just cancel and saying sorry there's too many errors you start you can't play this item and you couldn't i couldn't set the time on the roku without an active internet connection right which was 
really frustrating, right? Like, why do I need the internet to tell the Roku what the time is? Like, yeah, I can just that's... put it in myself. So I hmm. thought, that's fine. Maybe it's a Roku thing. So I went to my old LG, uh, Samsung TV. The Plex UI on this thing, it's like a 2013 model TV. So the Plex UI hasn't been updated since then. Right. Still couldn't run any local media. So, yeah, I'm very frustrated with Plex. I would encourage if you do have a, a Plex server running at home, do to unplug your internet for a while, maybe log out of Plex and, and try and, you know, just do a test yourself, see if you can get your local media playing locally. For whatever reason, I couldn't get it running. As soon as I, I eventually, because we've been, with, we've been without internet now for a week, I was able to plug in uh, an old phone into my router and, and get a SIM card, a data SIM card. As soon as I did that, uh, Plex has been able to play media now. So I don't That's know what bizarre. it is. It's, it is really bizarre. I had to edit some XML files to enable, you know, to bypass authentication locally and all that. That still didn't work. So I don't know what it is, but it's, yeah, really frustrating. And yeah, So I just it, it's actually one of the biggest complaints that Plex users have on the forums. I mean, people talk about it all the yeah. time. I, I think MB might have the same problem. Um, I can't oh, remember. Really? Yeah, yeah. So what I actually hmm. do is I run a small instance of mini DLNA as a backup just in case and share my media out via DLNA. Right. Because most TVs and uh, Roku's and things like that can actually yeah. play DLNA natively over the network. Yeah. So Plex, I found in my Plex server, there was an option, you know, enable uh, DLNA server. So I, I ticked that on and I was able to then get the Roku's to start seeing all the media I had. It was a really oh, awesome. you know, crappy library. <laughs> it was awesome until I started to, I, until I decided to press play on an item. And then for whatever reason, you know, I've got like 1080p content on my NAS it was buffering and, you know, couldn't watch the thing locally because it was trying, I'm guessing for however, whatever magic Plex does, the DLNA clients just didn't have the same codecs. So it was, you know, struggling to stream it. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's frustrating. I don't know what the answer is. At the moment, it was just get an internet connection. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's weird. Because 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 I always, I always assumed it would work without internet, so that's uh, yeah. I guess I got to try that too. Yeah, but yeah, I would encourage anyone if you uh, think your home automation system can withstand, like you know, we all talk about home system, you know, not relying on the cloud and anything. I would just encourage people. I know I wish I had done this beforehand. Just unplug the internet and and see what falls over because there's yeah. a lot of surprising stuff that I've uh, found out the hard way. It's, it's, it's almost like you need, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Chaos Monkey. It's a tool, I believe, built by Netflix, um, which basically goes around and breaks stuff in production for testing. Oh, right? nice. Because so, uh, the idea is nothing should break, especially in a scale of Netflix, right? Yes, yes. Um, so it's, you, you almost need Chaos Monkey for HA, right? Mm. So for all automation, <laughs> just to say, okay, you know what? What's going to happen if I break this? What happens if I break that? And it's like, yeah. okay, if it's an isolated break, cool. No, no problem. What happens if I break the internet? Okay, well, what falls over, right? At least that way you have some idea of what's breaking and what, mm. you, you know, like what what's actually going to fall over and what's not. So that, that might be kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, I found things like um, I had a lot of automations that were relying on uh, the weather outside. And yeah. because I didn't have an internet connection, yeah. those sensors were unavailable, so the automations wouldn't trigger. Like, oh, no. So it's not home yeah. system's fault, it's my logic's fault, right? Like, So now all of a sudden I've added you know, additional sensors to ping the Google DNS and detect when the internet's offline to ignore those sort of conditions. Yeah, or, or put some kind of a fallback condition, right? No internet means 
do exactly. this as this instead. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a big learning curve I've had this week, but wow, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, it, it, it's it's funny because in 2019 now having a week without internet is like what's going on. <laughs> oh, I am so millennial. We don't have a TV antenna connected, so we live off streaming <laughs> and Plex, right? And it's been tough, right? Like yeah. we've chewed through our mobile data connections, just trying to keep ourselves entertained. So yeah, yeah, it's it's like you're you're in the dark ages again. I am, yeah. <laughs> but I've finally got Home Assistant running again, so I'm happy with that. There you go. Caveman Phil. <laughs> At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brandon, it's this is this, your time to shine and you've got a really cool setup. So first, I think we need to start with, you know, your how, how you got here. So you're obviously using Home Assistant. So how are you using Home Assistant in your home? Wow. Uh, yeah. So in a myriad of ways, Home Assistant is, you know, it's a hobby. It's an addiction. It's a, <laughs> it's a way to flex a t- technical muscle uh, in it's a lot a way of different of life. ways. It is. It is. Yeah. And unfortunately, my whole family understands that now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I got started with Home Assistant a few years ago um, when, you know, Raspberry Pis came out and you wanted a fun way to be able to blink an LED. And being a software engineer, you know, I wrote my own like web front end, probably in PHP at the time, and just mm-hmm. to blink an LED and I saw a home assistant and it was starting to come together, but it wasn't quite what I was looking for. And I was determined to write my own thing, which was a terrible idea. Uh, but, you know, as home assistant matured, I would constantly grab other IoT devices and try to look for Python libraries. And every single time, home assistant would pop up as like one of the integration pieces. I'm like, all right, well, maybe it's time to check this out again. And since then, you know, uh, I've got. Everything from, you know, Ecobees and Google Homes, uh, mm-hmm. Casa with by TP-Link. Um, it's amazing yeah. how it grows so quickly. Right? It starts off with one little thing and then all of a sudden, oh, I need to get that too. And yeah. bam, there you go. Well, yeah. I, I liked it too because the flexibility. So I'm a maker and I, I build a lot of, you know, prototypey and uh, little hobby electronics projects and with the REST APIs and different scripts and stuff, I can really bend it to do exactly what I want it to do nine mm-hmm. times out of 10. Wow. That's very cool. So, so you've been doing this for a little bit then. Yeah. That's cool. How, how about like home automation in general? Like what's the, like, did, did you start with like any, anything way before, like as a kid, like yeah. or anything like that or. Yeah. So in college I worked at uh, radio shack and which is oh, cool. a electronics retailer. Well, it used to be here in the United States. And yeah. I had a pretty good discount on what was it X10, all yep. those mm-hmm. uh, all those switches and whatnot. So uh, had too many of those, didn't know what to do with it. Tried to you know make it work with you know over like a serial bus, which was always interesting, and never really got to work right. But that was my first kind of jump in. With that came you know the slippery slope to Logitech with their Harmony line and trying to find IR frequencies for non-TV and AV equipment and <laughs> yep. make it bend to my will and things like that. So 
that that was a slippery slope. And then, you know, once the Raspberry Pi came along, it kind of accelerated the IoT space, especially with the maker community. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. the floodgates just opened up. And what, what I actually got started with Home Assistant in is I started building a bar here at my house and a kegerator. So I, I brew my own beer and I wanted to build a smart bar. So the big thing at first was just an LED strip, which was a 50-50 SMD LED, you know, reel that you can get off mm-hmm. Amazon. And this nice was be- and cheap. Oh yeah, nice and cheap. This was before yeah. they had the Wi-Fi controllers and things like that. So I built a um, IR sniffer and IR blaster with the Raspberry Pi to be able to turn the lights on and off just via the Raspberry Pi. And I scripted that in with uh, my local sports teams, like huge fan of the Baltimore Ravens and the Hokies, uh, Virginia Tech Hokies football team. And I wanted it to come on on game day and actually change the color to, you know, the mascot or the team's official uh, colors. And so I scripted that all up with Python. And I thought there's got to be a better way to do this. And with Home Assistant, you know, it gave me a platform where I didn't have to necessarily write everything in Python code, but could extrapolate it out with you know, automations. And that's what really got me to look back at Home Assistant and start building everything into that platform. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so, so just run me how your bar is automated. So, like what alert, like what automations have you got yeah. that Home Assistant's managing for you? So, it started off as a Home Assistant gig and then uh, I actually built it out. And it's now it's an open source project. Uh, you can find it on GitHub called Boozer. And, uh, so the whole concept, it's a platform to monitor, you know, your local, uh, bar or kegerator where you can actually track, you know, how much beer is passed through the line, the temperature of the beer, exact pour volumes. And there's some alert mechanisms there. So what I've actually done to build it is in each beer line, there's actually a flow sensor, which is a waterproof hall effect sensor. That is mm-hmm. essentially five volts on and off, and you measure the delta with a Raspberry Pi. So you set up a lambda event or a trigger that will actually detect when the line opens. And based on the PSI of the beer, which you can calibrate, you know exactly how much beer flowed through the line based on how long <laughs> that, you know, the sensor is open. Yeah. So I've got that all working with SQLite and, um, with every pour, it can update an external display. So I use uh, a segmented LED display from Pimeroni called uh, Pi Hat or Pi, I forget what, uh, no, Scroll Fat. Yeah, it's called Scroll Fat. And what it will actually do is display in real time how much beer is passing through the line. And once you're done pouring the beer, it can tweet out via an embedded uh, Twitter API or post to Slack instantly and say, I just poured two pints of this beer at this temperature out of this tap. And I think you can see, I, I have a Twitter account. I haven't hooked it up lately, but it's called I Built a Bar. And it's got a lot of my uh, drinking history, unfortunately, and shows you exactly. <laughs> yeah, because sh- oversharing is caring, right? So That's um, right. That's right. Yeah, but it, it's actually, it's been great because while, you know, it's fun to tweet things out, the real reason why I built it is because being that, it's a it's a kind of a monolithic bar. It's kind of big and it's kind of a pain. I've got, you know, I think 50 pounds of granite sitting on top that I actually have to remove to change out every keg. And I wanted a way to be able to track how much beer is in each keg. So a lot of people and a few different commercial entities actually have gone out and they try to take a scale 
and measure how much beer is left in each keg by weight. Mm. But I yep. found that to be troublesome because the whole ecosystem of inside of a freezer, right? So there's a lot of humidity and the temperature swings and things like that. Plus electronics don't always mix. Mm-hmm. So I decided to look at it from, you know, the volume perspective about how much volume has gone through the line and subtract it from your standard five gallon corny keg. So Boozer actually detects how much beer is passed through through each pour, uh, adds that to a SQLite database, and then I can see in real time how much beer is left in each keg. And of course, that's stored in SQLite, but it can actually pump out to MQTT, InfluxDB, um, and MySQL if you wanted it to, and store it you know, offline. So I actually graph everything. At first, I was graphing it in Grafana mm-hmm. through InfluxDB, and then with uh, Lovelace you know, completely changing the game, I've actually gone in and created a custom component that shows, you know, in real time, the beer levels in each keg. Very cool. That's, okay. Yeah, okay. Wow. This is cool. Yeah, I, I'm just on your Twitter right now. Also, also, I'm now following you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm following your bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, this is this is really neat. Um, it's, it's, so, so why, why measure your, your, well, how much, how, how much necessarily you're point? drinking, but how, how much, how much beer, outside of like like was there was there another was there an external factor or was there just like yeah hey i go through a lot of kegs and i never know when to change it kind of thing or i mean i honestly i i brew more than i drink um okay you know i'm i'm, I'm not in college anymore but it's good you know when i have people over and parties and stuff i wanted to make sure i had enough beer you know to say hey come on yeah. over let's let's you know Let's, That's very social responsible of you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm here for the people. Um, but, <laughs> so it, it was just a way for me to know how much beer is left in each keg, and if I need to start brewing again or something like that, uh, without having to, you know, pull 50 pounds of granite off this thing yeah. just to lift up a keg and shake it. So it, it's a more efficient way. Plus, you know, being a software engineer and automation nut, I got to find a better way. So. Yeah. Well, because because why not, right? Yeah. Essentially, that's the answer to every question. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so how many, how many, uh, how, well, sorry, how long have you had this or like, and, and how many iterations has this gone through, like from version zero to version, whatever it is now? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, I actually started building the code before I actually lifted a hammer to work on the bar itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I had this idea and, uh, it was too cold. It was, it was during the winter times. I didn't want to be out in the garage, you know, yeah. actually woodworking. So I decided to start writing the code first uh, on Python. And I, it actually had its own web front end at first and PHP because, yeah, um, which was a chore and I didn't want to maintain it. So that's why I kind of looked at Home Assistant to, you know, outsource some of that UI element and some of the control pieces. So uh, what's actually really cool is... I, if you go on the GitHub website, you can see a picture of the bar and most people build like home kegerators in two different ways. If they use a chest freezer, they either uh, modify the freezer by extending the top lid up and putting the taps there. So it's still kind of like a rectangle shape or they do what I did and they uh, put a draft box on top. So think of like another, you know, two and a half by one and a half foot box that sits on top of this rectangle and that has all your taps in it. The problem with that is that the top draft box is no longer uh, actively cooled where, you know, where the kegs are actively cooled with the chilling component of the chest freezer. So 
beer has a tendency that if it gets out of bounds of 10 degrees of um, what it should be, it will start to foam. So I was actually wasting a lot of beer with the first pour every time because of that temperature swing. So what Mm. I ended up doing was with my Raspberry Pi that was running um, Boozer, I uh, put temperature sensors in the chest freezer and in the draft box and actually hooked up a uh, SaneSmart 5-volt relay with a 12-volt fan and some ductwork. And I, in a Python script, constantly checked to see if the temperature swings were outside of 10 degrees, and if so, cut on this fan and blow cold air from the bottom chest freezer to actively cool the draft box and reduce those temperature swings. Interesting. Wow. So I was I was doing that all in Python and within the boozer component, but you know I'm more of a fan of decoupling and you know microservices if I can try to do that in every way possible and try to make things a little bit simpler. So I ended up pulling that out of the code base and handing it to Home Assistant. So now with Home Assistant, I can sit there and monitor the temperatures, you know, in the actively cooled and passively cooled sections, and it actually can trigger the GPIO pin to cut on the relay and fan and chill the uh, upper draft box dynamically. Wow. So essentially you've got Home Assistant monitoring the temperatures to ensure you get the perfect pour of beer. Right. With as less wastage as possible. Right. Wow. I, I see no downside in this. This is fantastic. <laughs> Five stars. Done. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a labor of love. I've actually learned a lot in the process, and that's, that's yeah. what kind of got me started in this because I – you know, I always wanted to do a lot more with like smaller electronics and I started, you know, I wanted to make a blinking LED in college and I bought a 555 timer and I yep. was like, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> and so then I had way too many uh, Arduinos and then, you know, once the maker community embraced, you know, Linux and Raspberry Pis, you know, it was, it, this was just a method to my learning and a good channel for it. That's awesome. Yeah. Why not? Sure. So, so do you have any, do you have any other integrations like into a voice assistant or something to be like, Hey, how much beer is left or how much of whatever, whatever keg, let's say keg one, keg two or whatever brand you name it. Yeah, I, I have. So I've actually set that up recently. Um, I, I use Google home mostly in, or Google assistant mostly in my house. Uh, I have some Alexas too, but I've kind of slowly been transitioning over to the Google, um, platform. Yeah. And have set up some triggers to be able to read out, you know, the temperature and how much has been uh, in each keg or how much volume is left in each keg. So okay. that's more of a, hey, yeah, look, I can do this. Not actually functional. Well, not it's functional, but I don't use it that often. Right. And could you automate the actual serving of beer? Yeah. So that, that's interesting. Um, there, there are some products that I've seen um, that will actually close a beer line via servo mechanism and a valve yeah Mm -hmm. but being that beer is pressurized it's not as easy as like a servo closing a valve with a you know typical water line or something like that because i think i set most of my beers to come out around 13 psi and uh so technically if you left a tap open and had like a servo closing the valve you could do that uh it's just something i haven't gone down the road for and uh I'm okay with the way I have it right now. Fair enough. Yeah, that's cool. I uh, I saw a demo at, uh, I was in New York in January for the Nat- National Retail Federation uh, show. So, so the customers I cover are in the retail space. So I had to go for work. It was pretty cool. And one company actually had a fully automated bar. So I, I don't know if they had beer, but basically you had a 
it used um, it used a touchscreen panel where it would actually, with a camera embedded in it, it would do facial recognition and say, hey, you know what? You look like you're about blank years old. And based on that, and then again, they'll still verify ID and stuff. And then based on that, it'll actually um, uh, dispense, hey, you know, what do you want? You want a Cuba Libre? You want a whatever, right? Like, and it'll actually go out and, and so there'd be an attendant or, or a bartender essentially that just places the cup in and it would go and through different lines, it would go and uh, pull specific alcohols, pull whatever. So I thought it was actually kind of cool, but I guess it's a different challenge here too, because it's not like you can't really have one of those like instant shot kind of, I forget what they're called, but the little spring-loaded shot right. mechanism, right? So with beer, mm-hmm. but um, it's still pretty cool. I'll send you a video so, of that offline yeah, if you want. But it's, what's uh, funny about that, it's funny you bring that up, because I've I, I've heard of those, I've never seen one in person, but mm-hmm. from what I hear, they started in Vegas and then moved their way to like cruise ships and stuff. And why they actually came to be, other than the wow factor, was actually for inventory control. Yeah. So rather than like bartenders passing out free drinks, everything was like mechanized and tracked. Which is actually why some people have approached me like with commercial opportunities with Boozer talking about, hey, you know, my bar uh, loses too much beer. You know, this would be a way for me to actually do inventory control on beer, which I can't do today. Um, Which, you know, sounds great. I'm, you know, I'm a cloud architect in my real life and uh, I I just want to open source this. And if anyone wants to run with it, they can. But, you know, it's an idea. Very cool. Yeah, because I can see a lot of you know commercial applications. I remember uh, here in Melbourne uh, a long time ago. Now there used to be a bar. It was similar to a like a stock exchange, and based on what drink was you know being ordered the most would dictate the price. So the more people that went up and and bought you know brand A, the higher those, the price yeah. would go. Yeah, so you know combine it with Boozer, you could definitely automate that pricing. So yeah. Really cool. That's very cool. But also, I, I also very strongly dislike the idea of my alcohol not being consistently priced. Yeah. Well, now, you know, your assistant can say, hey, you've had too much to drink. We're cutting you off. All right? <laughs> like, that's it. Yeah. You like beer a little too much. <laughs> that's funny. So, I'm guessing, uh, Brandon, so you've got, you know, you, you, your bar automated. So, if you've been able to automate that or, you know, put some cool sensors around that, what else have you added around your, your home to, to automate and, and track? Yeah, sure. So, I've done a few things that are kind of out of the box that, you know, are worth talking about. One of which, uh, I know last uh, episode or last release, you were talking about the new vacuum component yes. where you can actually bake that out into vacuums that don't support, you know, Home Assistant or APIs natively. Yep. And I'm doing it a different way. I, I definitely want to use that uh, platform once I get some time to try it out. But I actually have a Eufy vac from Anchor, which is uh, a RoboVac, kind of similar to Roomba. I have a Roomba as well, but I've got a Eufy vac, and it's called a PetVac 11. I forget which one, but it's actually got Google Assistant and Alexa capabilities, but no other you know API mechanism. So I've set up... Uh, a open source project called Assistant Relay, which runs on my local Kubernetes cluster and just lives out there with a uh, dynamic DNS entry within my home network. And I can Mm. fling it curl commands to actually talk to Google Assistant as if my voice was. So I can type there and say, turn on the RoboVac with a curl command and hit this Assistant Relay and it'll talk to Google Uh. and turn on the vacuum cleaner. 
That's really cool, actually. Yeah, so I'm using uh, the scripting component within Home Assistant to turn on and off my vacuum cleaner via Home Assistant, even though natively it can only talk to Google. Interesting. Ah, so yeah, you'll be able to eventually use that template vacuum cleaner component to then Absolutely. Just, yeah, use those scripts and then you can have yeah, Home Assistant completely manage that vacuum cleaner. That is a great use case for it. Yeah, absolutely. So looking forward to that. Uh, another one uh, that I recently put together was uh, with my Xbox and Logitech Harmony. I actually, uh, I have a Harmony hub that can sit there and, you know, control my AV devices yeah. remotely. And I have an Xbox One and I travel a good bit for work and sometimes I want to play remotely. And I use this app where I can actually pull up my Xbox over my VPN back to my house natively on my MacBook. Uh, the problem with that is that I normally play, you know, in the middle of the night when I get back from work and it actually turns on my Xbox, which over HDMI CEC will turn on everything else in my AV stack, yeah. including the volume. And, you know, I've got a two-year-old at the house and my wife, and they don't want me, uh, they don't want to hear Call of Duty at 2 a.m. when, you know, I am <laughs> 400 miles away. So with Home Assistant, what I've actually done is with presence detection with my uh, Ubiquity stack, Unify stack, I have where whenever my Xbox turns on, it will check to see if my phone or my, my person is home. And mm-hmm. if I'm not, it will automatically mute my AV system uh, connected to the Xbox. Cool. So I can sit there and play remotely without the volume going out through the speakers and waking up everyone in the house. So, so does the does the TV still turn on in that case? It does, which is unfortunate, and I need to find a way to turn that off. I, I can turn it off with the Harmony Hub, but I yeah. haven't done the testing to ensure that that doesn't then turn off my Xbox because you know how HDMI CEC can be yep. two way and yeah. Interesting. Uh, so I'm guessing you couldn't just put a smart switch on the TV and and cut kill power to the TV in that case. <laughs> I, I, I certainly could. Yeah, that's actually an idea too um, that I hadn't thought about. But uh, I'll think about that. As long as you know, once again, you don't have that two way HDMI CEC problem. Right. That might be a, a simple way to just take it out of the mix. Yeah, and it, it's funny you bring up power. So I've been doing a lot with uh, power lately. Uh, I, even though it's going to sound like it, I don't really. I, my power bill is a lot lower than it should be. Uh, I think power is cheap in this area of the country. But uh, I've actually been working on this new project that I'm hoping to open source soon uh, that actually does power monitoring with a US software or USB software-defined radio. So I found this project. Um, I think the guy's name is B Masher. I originally wrote it. It's a Golang library that can use an off-the-shelf USB software-defined radio. You know, you can pick up at Amazon for 20 bucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And with that, you can actually grab over the air your power meter reading in real time. And for what like I, the house, you know, for like the whole house, meter. the yeah. whole house. Yeah. And ironically enough, you can pick it up for the whole neighborhood because apparently uh, <laughs> these things blast out a lot more than you think. But uh, once I was able to find my which one was my house, I'm able to pull in real time exactly what the meter is. And by using deltas and feeding into Home Assistant and InfluxDB, I can actually track in real time my whole home power usage completely over the air with a USB software-defined radio. Wow, that's cool. So I've got it hooked up with automations. I went in and found out the power delta with things like my washing machine, my dishwasher, my dryer, 
And my wife and I both use Home Assistant via the iOS app, and I use the notification platform to notify us whenever each one of those stops its cycle. That is cool. So how do you – so what if you're running the dishwasher and the washing machine at the same time? How do you – I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's why I want to open source it, right? Someone else can figure that out. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, so, no, that's a great point. It, it's just one of those things I've been toying with, and I, I want a nice way to be able to see graphs of you know my power usage. And I also wrote another component um, that's actually out on my GitHub right now that will allow you to take a U- or UPS and uninterruptible power supply and take the reading directly from that on a Raspberry Pi or other device and shove it directly into MQTT. So mm. or in FluxDB, but you know MQTT is very popular in the home assistant community uh, for good reason. So I have UPSs all over my house, my server rack, and you know uh, my desk and other places throughout my house. So. I can get, you know, more detailed, uh, fine grain power monitoring statistics directly from those. Yeah, that's cool. That's neat. No, one of, one of the other things I'm interested in, I know I kind of teed this up to you guys um, in email, but I'm a huge fan of uh, Hazio or Hazio. And yeah, mm-hmm. I, I actually didn't use it for years and I shied away from it because it seemed kind of like the newbie way of running home assistant uh rohan just like you i always ran in docker and that just worked for me yeah but then i started seeing components being added like esp home which i'm a huge fan of and just cannot get enough of because i i run a lot of esp 8266s and 32s around the house Mm -hmm. for uh pir presence detection and uh, temperature sensing and things like that uh, and it was just a natural way of installing those secondary components without, you know, running the dockers myself and things like that. Uh, so I started using HasIO, but I wanted to run I wanted to run HasIO and Kubernetes. So for those who don't know, Kubernetes <laughs> is a uh, distributed computing platform that allows you to run Docker containers at scale across different types of hardware, different you know, different servers, Raspberry Pis. And do it dynamically where you don't care what runs. I know, uh, Phil, you were saying you wanted uh, high availability for your internet and for Plex and things like that. Yeah. Uh, the great thing about Kubernetes is it allows that you know high availability, fault tolerant platform to do Docker containers. So that's what I do in my day job. So I wanted to set up something similar at home, which my whole stack outside of uh, Home Assistant actually runs in Kubernetes. So I've been working on a project. I'm very early on. I've got it somewhat working where I'm actually using the HasIO code base, but rather than talking to the Docker daemon locally on uh, the device that runs HasIO, I talk to the Kubernetes API. Nice. So dynamically, I can run Home Assistant and all of its underlying components uh, throughout my home network on different classes of servers in a high available manner. Uh, where, you know, if my wife kicks the cable on, you know, the server rack, you know, the server down in the garage will keep chugging with Home Assistant and I don't have any downtime. Yeah, see, that's the, like, that's really cool. I mean, it's definitely overkill for, you know, a home automation system, but I I absolutely love this sort of stuff, right? My, My question to you would be, how do you go about local devices? For example, you know, if you've got a, you know, a Z-Wave radio plugged in to a USB device upstairs, 
Uh, how do you go about ensuring that that remains available over the whole Home Assistant instance? Yeah, that, that, that's definitely the problem. So, uh, you know, I'm not using Z-Wave quite yet. I, I'm definitely interested in doing it, but I am using like that USB software-defined radio, and I only have one of those. So uh, it, you can't do a lot of high availability, especially with Home Assistant, if you have to register with a certain like hardware um, ID or MAC address or something like that. It's mm-hmm. going to be a little bit more difficult, um, but you know you got to start somewhere. And if you need to replicate, you know, hardware, you know, some in some instances you could do that, but you know, got to start somewhere. Yeah, I'm guessing that a lot of the stuff I'm trying to move over now is to move a lot of components over to MQTT, so that way mm-hmm. at least because I run you know two instances of Home Assistant, they can at least use MQTT as the bridge to share the data amongst each other. So, you know, things like, and there's a lot of projects coming in, like ZigBee to MQTT, there's now Z-Wave to MQTT. Right. So, yeah, like I think, you know, moving a lot of stuff over to that would definitely solve that issue. Well, it's funny you mentioned, you know, the hardware disparity with like different nodes and things like that, because that's actually a problem I have right now. I, um, all of my home assistant configurations, I run through uh, Jenkins, which is a DevOps CICD, mm-hmm. continuous integration, mm-hmm. continuous delivery platform that allows me to test to make sure things are working properly. And that's something I can't do right now with a few of my scripts because they depend on that hardware being there. And so it's a similar problem. And I think what you could actually do in certain instances, I've never played with this, but some people do have USB over network uh, yes, type of configurations, yeah. which I don't know if you guys have ever messed with. I, I haven't. No, I've, I've seen it. I've never messed with it. Um, mm. We've we've used to have a couple in my old uh, lab at our old office, but I never I never got a chance to play with those. So that could be you know a solution. You could have your USB Z Wave as a service or something like that <laughs> over yeah, your network. On a lot of people that um, have a Vera controller, they have found a way to, you know, because the Vera can you can SSH into it. They've, you know, managed to, you know, disconnect the the Vera UI or the Vera software from the Z-Wave radio inside those units, and then, you know, same thing, just expose that radio over USB to the internet to, and then use it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, one other thing. I, I just, while you guys were talking at the beginning of the podcast, I was on the Home Assistant subreddit and I see the WiseCam. I don't, WiseCam is a Xiaomi yeah. brand mm-hmm. here in the yep. United States and I know it's starting to trickle out, but apparently they've added a sensor line, uh, relatively cheap, that comes with a USB dongle for some type of RF, um, you know, sensing. And apparently, uh, a guy named Name is Young Dev has written a new library for Home Assistant. They'll actually allow you to use the sensors in their battery-operated motion and contact sensors, and they're only five and six bucks a piece. That's not bad. So I was looking to do Z-Wave, but you know if this works out, it might be something to uh, approach as an alternative. Yeah, that's not bad. Mm, the only thing I like, so I've always found uh, Z-Wave to be like really rock solid. It just it generally just works, right? Whereas Zigbee and, and everything else, it's it's very dependent on what you buy. Like the Xiaomi stuff is generally okay, but it you know, it might not talk to every other manufacturer out there. Right. Yeah. And 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 you see that a lot with a lot of open standards like that, right? Because a lot of times it's open to interpretation. Yeah. And exactly. Whereas something proprietary like Zigbee or sorry, like Z Wave is a lot more st- strictly controlled 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's there's something to be said about proprietary stuff there, right? But again, Zigbee is typically cheaper because it is <laughs> it is open right. source or open. It's it's an open protocol. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen NVIDIA came out in March with uh, what's called the Jetson Nano platform. Yep. ARM64 based, uh, you know, system on a chip board that actually includes a 128 core uh, CUDA GPU. That's an NVIDIA GPU, yep. which is huge. And they've geared it towards makers. It's got a GPIO pin layout uh, that's identical to the Raspberry Pi. And, you know, it's USB 3. It's got an M2 slot. So it was the Raspberry Pi 4 before the Raspberry Pi 4, but there's still some, you know, great things that kind of put it in a different class all for $100. So I actually bought uh, three of those, and I'm running them in a Kubernetes cluster locally here at home. But I'm starting to work with TensorFlow and using trying to use that 128-core GPU to do more uh, image detection and image analysis directly with Home Assistant. So I know... I, think it was probably like six episodes ago you guys uh were talking about the streaming platform and mm-hmm. tensorflow and yeah. the creator one of the first things he said was don't do this on your raspberry pi you have to use <laughs> you know a 64-bit x86 based yeah. architecture to do this and i think I, i've started working with uh has io and trying to get integration through the uh the docker daemon with the gpio uh or excuse me the gpu uh underlying system and i'm starting to have some good successes so i'm hoping this might be an opportunity for you know the arm-based communities to still have some success with tensorflow and uh home assistant yeah with an extra sentry strap on box here well yeah i mean it's not even a this is it's completely self-contained so the gpu i know uh what is it g uh google came out with coral which is a different usb stick that you plug into raspberry pi yeah this is actually self-contained within the, com- the computer, if you will, yes. the system on a board. So it's still, you know, $100 and you can run with it. And it does run has, has IO fine out of the box. It's just getting the GPU to be integrated. Uh, I'm having some trouble, but I'm having some early successes. Very cool. Okay. Well, I mean, I'd love to see how that project goes because this is personally, this is something I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, but this is, uh, that's very cool. Yeah, I, I was I was familiar with uh, with the Jetsons, and and again, at uh, I, I know a couple of people at work that have those, and they do a lot of stuff with specifically with TensorFlow with that. But sure, um, yeah, it's it's very cool. And so, are you like looking to like map a certain object? Like, is that what you're trying to do with it? Or? You know, it's one of those things. Why? Because I can. Um, <laughs> so I, I have some cameras around the house, uh, you know, using, I'm actually starting to get into the ESP cam market with the ESP 8266s and because they're very cheap and very lightweight. And being that I have a myriad of different, you know, camera providers, ubiquity, you know, um, some anchor cameras and things like that. I wanted a centralized platform where I could do image analysis rather than being, you know, stovepiped into the different manufacturers. So that's why I'm kind of looking to bring it on to HasIO and do things like person detection and presence detection based on who the camera sees and uh, other things. I have a two-year-old and I kind of want to be able to have a trigger here in Home Assistant that says, all right, she's still in her crib. She's good. Or, you know, send us an alert or turn on a light or something when she's out of the crib. Right. And oh, actually do nice. that with uh, visual analysis rather than just some other type of trigger. 
Yeah, like a motion sensor or, you know, a floor, like pressure sensor or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really cool, actually. So, we'll leave links to Brandon's uh, Boozer project uh, and all that in the show notes so you can check that out as well. Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time to explain Boozer to us and everything like that. We really appreciate you taking the time for us. Yeah, absolutely, guys. It's been a pleasure. This has been awesome. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Cheers, guys. If you want to share your home assistant journey or come on as a guest, reach out to us at feedback at haspodcast.io. That's H-A-S-S podcast.io. The Home Assistant Podcast is hosted by Phil Hawthorne and myself, Rohan Karamandi. For links to topics that we discussed today, check out our show notes on haspodcast.io. 